me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio and lovely AM 950, talking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Here I am, talking to you again about idealism and, uh, and highlighting idealist humans working to change the world for the better in various ways. And welcome to the last fresh show of 2023. Next Saturday, the 30th, will be a best of Ellie, okay, because the whole station shuts down. So today's show is going to be special as we close out 2023 and look forward to 2024. Uh, look forward to 2024 with some great trepidation, I might add, but we're not going to go in there into that today. For today's show, the big interview is with an artist um, and change agent, uh, Nancy X. Valentine, who will be talking about using her art as a vehicle for conversations around skin color and racism and, and um, just how to be welcoming to humans who are different from anyone else, um, you know, because we can make anybody different. And in my C block, um, you know, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist, but as we always do, in this A block, let's begin with this week's featured idealist, who, uh, as is usually the case, someone that most of you probably have never heard of. I'm speaking of a man named Stephen Ritz. He's a teacher and an activist in the Bronx, you know, in New York City, Southern Bronx, who has used urban farming as a tool for greater student engagement and success. Okay, first the setting. The Bronx, particularly the South Bronx, is among the, one of the poorest parts of America, with nearly 60% of the kids living below the poverty line and nearly 40% of the residents suffering from food insecurity. And the unemployment rate is 25%. Crime and drug use are rampant, and it's certainly not the kind of place where hope usually thrives. Um, it is also, the South Bronx is also a food desert without grocery stores. So I just kind of laid the foundation there. Um, enter Stephen Ritz, the son of immigrant parents who grew up in the Bronx and then went away for co to college and grad school, obtained a master's degree, and then went back to teach in the Bronx. And then quite by accident, um, he learned that students in one of his classes got excited when they found a box of daffodil bulbs um, blooming in the in the... Stephen got this box. He didn't know what it was. He threw it under the radiator, and then the box started blooming with flowers, and the kids kind of went crazy over this, and that planted a seed, thank you for the pun, Ellie, in Stephen Ritz's brain. Maybe he could use plants and gardening as a vehicle for engaging students uh, while also working to solve the food desert problem in the South Bronx. Fast forward 20 years later. Stephen Ritz is now known for his, he's got floppy cheese hat. Believe it, he's kind of a character, trust me. He's got a signature bow tie that he wears under the cheese hat, and, is, and he holds the status as educator, author, and urban farmer. He is the curator of what's become known as the, quote, Green Bronx Machine, unquote, which is housed on the fourth floor of a 100-year-old school building. It is a huge greenhouse with, where students plant and grow vegetables that, turn, that in turn are shared with the greater Bronx community. Stephen also created, and Stephen and his students also created living walls where it is possible to literally eat directly from the plants growing on the side of a building. Think uh, argu uh, argula and kale, okay? 
I mean, you can literally go up, grab something off the wall, and eat it, okay? These living walls have started showing up throughout New York and in Boston, um, and the students have also created what are living, living roofs and living uh, roofs as well. So, for example, you know, this guy is, I mean, he, you're, I'm going to play a clip in a second. You're going to get an idea about how energetic he is. He's also a great marketer. There's no doubt about that. But he, he somehow uh, the rich, the very rich living in, in the Hamptons on Long Island decided they wanted, somebody wanted a, a living roof. And so he and his students, there's a video of he and his students going out to the Hamptons and uh, installing this living roof, which by the time it was done, there's patterns on the roof because the plants have different colors and, and they plant them in a way that you see like a wave. And it's actually ingenious, okay? But the key here is it gets kids excited. That, you know, kids of color from the poorest neighborhood earning money from rich people, I think that's pretty darn cool. Now, from a return on investment metrics perspective, the results have been off the charts. Now, uh, you know, you know, I'm on the you know Eastern Carver County School Board, and we have a big push this year around attendance, because if you're not in school, you're not learning. Okay, so there's been a big push to to make sure that the students who are the most difficult to get to school that we're focusing on them to get them to come to school. So, from a return on it, investment perspective for this, what Stephen Ritz has been doing, um, uh, attendance at Ritz's school has gone from 40% to more than double, to 93%. That is phenomenal. In an inner city school, are you kidding me? And then 100% of the students are getting passing grades. Now, we're going to play a clip from a TED talk. It's, you're, I'm dropping you in the middle of the talk, okay? And I'm taking you back out of the middle of the talk, all right? But I want you to listen to this clip and hear the energy of this idealist, okay? All right, it's a talk he gave on Ted, uh, TEDx a decade ago, but you're going to hear his passion. You're going to hear this idealist about changing the world. Go ahead, uh, Patrick, if you would. But those kids are the kids who are now putting on pumpkin patches on top of trains. We're also designing koi ponds for the rich and affluent. We're also becoming children of the court, creating farms in the middle of Fordham Road for awareness and window bottles out of garbage. Now, I don't expect every kid to be a farmer, but I expect them to read about it, write about it, blog about it, and offer outstanding customer service. I expect them to be engaged, and man, are they. So that's my incredible classroom. That's the food. Where does it go? Zero miles to plate, right down into the cafeteria. Or, more importantly, to local shelters where most of our kids are getting one to two meals a day. And we're stepping it up. No Air Jordans were ever ruined on my farm. And in this day of million dollar gardens and incredible installations, let me tell you something, people. This is a beautiful moment. You know, Blackfield, Brownfield, Toxic Wastefield, Battlefield. We're proving in the Bronx that you can grow anywhere on cement. And, you know, we take orders for flowers. Well, I'm putting the big sale to shame. We take orders now, a booking for the spring, okay? And these are all grown from seeds. We're learning everything. And again, when you can take kids from backgrounds as diverse as this to do something as special as this, we're really creating a moment. Now, you may ask about these kids. 40% attendance to 93% attendance. All start over age and under credit. They are now, my first cohort is all in college, earning living wage. The rest are scheduled to graduate this June. Happy kids, happy families, happy colleagues, amazed people. The glory and bounty that is Bronx County. Let's talk about mint. Where is my mint? I grow seven kinds of mint in my class. Mojitos, anybody? I'll be a telepan later. But 
Understand, this is my intellectual Viagra. Ladies and gentlemen, I gotta move quick, but understand this. The borough that gave us baggy pants and funky fresh beach is becoming home to the organic ones, okay? My green breath, 25,000 pounds of vegetables. I'm growing organic citizens, engaged kids. So help us go from this to this. Self-sustaining entities, 18 months return on investment, plus we're paying people living wage and health benefits while feeding people for pennies on a dollar. Martin Luther King said that, you know, people need to be uplifted with dignity. So here in New York, I urge you, my fellow Americans, to help us make America great again. It's simple. Okay, so, um, <laughs> and, 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 and of course, my listeners, you picked up him talking about make America great again. Now, he was saying that before Donald Trump ever said it, and he was actually saying it in a way that was real about uplifting all humans. Okay, but you caught his passion, right? You heard it in his voice. You heard this guy. I mean, and that's what it's about sometimes is just being energetic and and showing up. And then what you do is it's contagious. You excite other people. And, you know, it it, it just goes from there. Now, I know you've never heard of this guy. Okay, but. He's, he's, he's got multiple websites. He's got one website titled The Green Bronx Machine. He's got another one for himself. He's written at least two books. And do me a favor, just Google his name, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Ritz, R-I-T-Z, and read up on what this guy has done. And he's not only done it alone, of course. He's gotten a lot of help, a lot of collaborators. If you go on the website, you see all of these politicians and other people showing up in his classroom and the awards that he's gotten and, and the places where he's presented and talked about this. As I said, he's a good marketer, okay? But he's got a great idea and a great thing that's going on. And um, I applaud him for that. I really do. Because he's doing something incredible. He's giving hope to kids who didn't have it before they encountered him. Okay. All right. Well, that's all we've got. I'm going to take a break. And then when we come back, uh, you're going to love Nancy X. Valentine. She is incredible. And she's got a great message. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. We'll be back in a sec. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. So make sure you check out that Stephen Ritz guy because uh, I'm quite the idealist. And I am thrilled for the big interview to have what I, whom I think is another huge idealist. I have with me Nancy Xiaorong Valentine um, calling in uh, from Fergus Falls, Minnesota. And, um, and, and, and who is uh, somebody featured in Minnesota Women's Press uh, most recently with a wonderful, wonderful uh, self-essay about the work that uh, you are doing, Nancy. Uh, Welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled that you are here. Thanks for being part of the show. 
Gosh, thanks for having me. <laughs> I feel so honored. Oh, Nancy, you, you're doing great work out in greater Minnesota, which is incredibly important. Can, can I get a little bit of a snapshot of your story, okay? Because it is a unique, a fairly unique story as we, as we think about greater Minnesota. And, and I'm right, you're in Fergus Falls. Am I right about that? Yes, Fergus okay. Falls, West okay. Central Minnesota. Okay, all right. Go ahead. Give us, give us a little bit of, uh, of your story here, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, my name is Nancy Xiaorong Valentine, and I am a Chinese-American artist. I specialize in uh, watercolor and Chinese ink and, and illustrating uh, contemporary Chinese paintings. Um, oftentimes, I start out by sharing that it would just it'd be remiss of me to say that my story starts with me. Um, it really starts with my mother, a woman named uh, Hao Xiaorong. And so uh, in the well, she was born in the late 60s and uh, lived most of her life in mainland China in the city of Lanzhou, Gansu, and, um, you know, became a music teacher, got married, had a son. And because China is an honor and shame based culture, uh, when her husband was unfaithful and actually left, um, she ended up having to move back in with my grandparents and um was essentially what I guess the the culture would consider a shamed woman. And so she was born before the one-child policy. And because of that, she has a couple of siblings, an older sister and a younger brother. And her younger brother uh, went through medical school and did a residency in the United States. And huh. at that time, he met a man named Michael Valentine, uh, a man who was a war veteran, um, a physician's assistant and you know just as you get to know your colleagues they they got to become friends and and shared photographs and when he saw a photograph of my mother um, of course he started to ask a little bit more about her <laughs> um, through a series of events my grandparents and he uh, arranged a marriage which is a practice that's still uh, culturally happening today in many eastern cultures and um, at the time, you know, he had sold everything, thinking that he was going to move to China, start this life, live the rest of his days there. But uh, when he landed and my mom was introduced as, you know, his new wife, uh, this was the first time she had heard about it. And as a very dutiful woman um, who understood that this was a means of restoring honor to the family, um, she did what was asked of her. And so um, as a part of that marriage, of course, consummation is a thing. <laughs> and so um, in December of 1991, I was conceived. Okay. But because China had the one-child policy, um, my conception was illegal, which meant that uh, the government would have needed to uh, force my termination. So when that was discovered, my father moved back to the United States. He had a one-bedroom cabin on Wall Lake, just outside of Fergus Falls, Minnesota, and um, you know, leaned into his community to essentially get the paperwork done, move mountains. And in February of 92, just 10 days before my government appointed abortion date, uh, my mom and my older brother landed on U.S. soil uh, with me in utero. So okay. my life was saved because of my mother. And, and you got to be born an American citizen. So that was, you know, pretty cool as well. So, and then, you, you know, and then your story is your father struggled with alcohol and he ended up 
you know, losing his life when you were just a very young child. Am I right about that? Yeah, that is correct. You know, I think a lot of the things with the Vietnam War and PTSD, not major part of the conversation, the zeitgeist at the time, but um, a struggle that he, yeah, he lost his battle to when I was just three and a half years old. I'm sorry that that, you know, that happened to you and your family. But the reason we've got, and it's a fascinating story. It it really is. And, um, and by the way, I hope that you play the lottery often because <laughs> you've, got, you've got some good luck. Um, but, you know, so you, your dad dies. You're in Fergus Falls with your mom and your brother, older brother. And, um, and you're, you're certainly your mom and your sibling, I'm, I'm going to assume, look very Asian. Am I right about that? You yes, know, both and, are full Chinese. Yeah, and, and, and so I'm, you know, please understand, I mean, my work is around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I talk about how we group and label humans, and, and it's just humans do that. They, they put people into categories and all of that stuff. So please bear with me, and I'm not trying to marginalize you or your family in any way. Um, and so, but, but your essay um, that showed up in Minnesota Women's Press, which is lovely essay, and... Um, you talk about being, um, first of all, your family being othered in mm-hmm. Fergus Falls, and then you, you struggling um, with your Asian identity, but also with the fact that, you know, you, you, you have a lot of Caucasian features that that would come from your father. Okay, and so can you talk to us about? that struggle and, and, and talk to us about what, what it was it like for growing up in Fergus Falls and maybe how your experience was divergent from what your brother and your mother's experiences were. Yeah, no, I appreciate you setting the scene with that context. And I appreciate your approach to this, Ellie, because um, that is something that's really quite complex is my, my experience um, as a biracial Chinese American was different than my, my mother and my brothers. You know, um, when we were growing up throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, one of the major things that I expressed to people is that my mother did not know English when she came here. So she had to learn on the fly as she was yeah. living her life. And um, there are many folks around here who were not ever exposed to Asian people. And so the idea of an accent, um, they mm. equated with lower education. And um, so my mother was really looked down upon often or um, spoken slowly to, but not through a lens of compassion, um, through a lens of prejudice. Yeah. And, and impatience my, and impatience. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, And another thing about that, too, is the economic systems. You know, my mother grew up in China, so she understood a totally different um, use of currency. And so when we came here, uh, uh, the land of credit, uh, (laughs) that was something that we ended up it was a hurdle to us many times over because it wasn't something that we had inherited. Financial literacy was something we both had to be taught um, and individually I needed to seek out on my own in order to rise above the poverty line, which is where I was raised. And so um, a struggle that I really had was, you know, going into the home and seeing the bond that my mother and brother had, you know, they, they loved um, everything Chinese and, at that time throughout my upbringing, I saw that as the marker of what made me different from my classmates. Mm. So, you know, regrettably, I am the reason why um, 
you know, halfway through my life, my mom stopped cooking Chinese food because I started asking for the pizza rolls uh, that my friends would have or spaghetti. Spaghetti was a huge one that I always wanted. Um, and so now I have a, a huge, um, I really cherish those traditional dishes and have been actually seeking out different recipes to kind of bring that back to me to feel close to my culture. Sure. Uh, but at the time, it was really hard. My mom also made the decision to actually switch my brother and I from the public school system into private school system, um, specifically because my brother endured quite a bit of bullying. Um, he even actually at one point uh, got stabbed in the hand with a pencil from a classmate. And instead of the other student being punished, he was punished. Oh so yeah, of course, of course. That and, you know, a lot of the people that came around her at the time when she was freshly here were folks in the church. Um, a local Presbyterian church. And so she was making these um, equations between uh, folks of faith and uh, kindness. So I wouldn't necessarily say that was the same experience that my brother and I had through our public or our private school education. Um, it was just maybe, maybe the prejudice was a little bit more discreet <laughs> than it would be um, just outward. But uh, I will say they, they endured so much more than I did because, you know, I don't have an accent. Um, my mother did not, well, initially she wasn't allowed to pass on the language because of my father's fear of um, her somehow taking us and running away. And from then on, my mom did not pass it on because she didn't want us to have an accent um, mm. or any reason for anyone to treat us any differently from our classmates. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, but you're growing up and you're understanding there are all these unwritten rules that exist in American society and, and in Fergus Falls. Um, and and I'm, I've got to be conscious of our time here. And if I can just proceed it along a little bit. So, you know, you, you're growing up in Fergus Falls. You have, I mean, you, you are making friends, but they're not Asian friends. They're not Chinese friends. They're, um, you know, white um, Caucasian friends. And then you go off to UMD, University of Minnesota Duluth, and then you have some kind of an awakening. And, and, and that ends up helping to influence what you're doing now. So if you could talk about that, please. Absolutely. You know, my, my time in Fergus Falls and that upbringing really built a wedge between me and my mother. Um, I would say, um, uh, I just really rejected so much of that culture because I wanted to belong. And when I went off to UMD, it was the first time I was surrounded by peers that looked like me at all. Um, in addition to, you know, Asian students, there were biracial students and mixed people. And that that experience alone was um, I don't know, it, it felt very beautiful to feel seen and yeah. reflected for the first time ever. But really, truly, the turning point for me was uh, through a course called Intercultural Communications. Um, I took it one year and then I TA'd for it three subsequent um, semesters. And that was led by Dr. Ryan Goey and Dr. Mike Sunnefrank. The whole concept of the class was essentially um, divided up of 50% white kids, 50% students of color, and essentially, uh, our classes um, were all about deconstructing stereotypes about mm. each other, meeting each other, playing with one another. Our homework was quite literally to connect with another student from a different cultural background and play, share a meal, and then write an essay about their story. I love so it. Love it. Love it. Love it. 
just deconstructed so many things for me um, and fostered true community across cultural lines. It, it inspired me um, even to this day. That's just so great. It really is. And so then, I mean, you end up going back to Fergus Falls, right? And, and, and then somehow you start, I mean, you start with art and tell us about the, you know, the, the exhibit and the installation that, that, that now is traveling in different places within Minnesota and, and, and your role with that, with that exhibit. Yeah. So when I returned to Fergus Falls, um, there was a, an ulterior motive as well. I recognized in college that I needed to do some internal racial reconciliation um, and some relationship repair with my mother. You know, this person who had sacrificed so much for me to even be um, a person. <laughs> right. And so um, I actually went back to China for a month to spend time with my mom's family in her hometown um, with the intention of seeing it with a fresh adult eyes by myself. And that really fostered an affinity, a familiarity, and also um, just an experience that I, I carry with me in inspiration. Um, so my time in Fergus was short-lived, went to the cities for a bit, um, ended up working for an organization called Springboard for the Arts, yeah. and was really exposed to the idea of artist advocacy. Um, and that I would say is really integral to my practice today. You know, I started in watercolor because as someone who grew up under the poverty line, it was within my means to be able to purchase. Um, but slowly as I started getting more and more into the medium, um, it brought me back to all these different memories that I had of observing my grandfather do Chinese calligraphy just as a spiritual practice. We and should. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you. We should add that your grandparents eventually emigrated to the U.S. as well. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. In 1997, they were okay. able to come over to help familial raise us, essentially. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So your grandfather, he was a, he did calligraphy. And, and go ahead. And so you learned some art from him. For lack, yeah, of, a, for just, lack of a better phrase. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... Honestly, as an artist, um, you kind of become deeper and deeper involved in your medium. And so as I learned more about watercolor and inks, especially, and water-activated mediums, it kind of brought me into this place of... Um, a lot of artists describe it as flow, a flow state, when you're creating and hours just pass by and whatever you're feeling or is within you comes mm -hmm. out just almost as if it's guided by some ethereal being. And that was something that really I started to integrate into my practice. And then um, when Springboard for the Arts came out with an opportunity, it was called Artists Respond Equitable Rural Futures. This was about um, this was in 2021. And at the time, um, that spring, there were these murders in Atlanta of, of spa workers, eight people, six of whom were of Asian descent. And uh, when I was lamenting to my community about it, I just didn't see um, either support nor even recognition of the event that had happened. And so I realized, you know, I can't expect people in my community who barely know a single Asian person to have an understanding of what it's like to be someone yeah. growing up in the Asian diaspora. And so I kind of saw it as an, a moment of activation of how can I 
build a bridge essentially between my experiences and this community that I love, but doesn't really know how to love me. Mm. And so um, I I recognize that at the time, especially as someone who is neurodiverse and has some, um, I live with mental illness, I don't have the energy or capacity to go out and, you know, have conversations with people who might be combative or not ready to hear what I have to share. And so as an artist, I thought, you know, what is a way that I can have these conversations, share what I need to share, and also attract the people who are ready to have those conversations. And so from there, I just reflected on, well, if you know nothing about a Chinese person, what is something that would be familiar to the culture to you? And then I realized, well, everyone has been to a Chinese buffet and they've probably seen those really iconic little red and white placemats that have the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac on them. And so that was kind of where this connection between using the Chinese zodiac and then mixing both Western and Eastern um, symbolism and Uh, representation for each of those animals to essentially tell my family's story of immigrating from China to the U.S. Okay. And, and, and so the installation, you know, the exhibit is showing up at different places. It's in Winona right now that you related to me before we started. And then do you go down and, and have conversations with people who come to the exhibit? And, and then do you use that as a way to talk about getting past um, othering and, and, and finding a way to accept humans who are different from you, you know, you, you, the viewer of the art. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. I would say that my exhibition, um, which just to give your viewers context, um, I've created these paintings on rice paper, on silk brocade, and the size of them, they're about two and a half feet wide by six feet tall. They're so beautiful. the presence of them is just very, very large. They're and very, very beautiful. I've- Go ahead. Thank you. Every time I have an exhibition, I ask if I can have an artist talk, partially because that's my time to share context for the series, but also to allow for familiarity to be bred between me and the audience. Um, The talk changes Hmm. based on who's in front of me and, you know, all the things that I share are true, but I also recognize that um, there's just something really special that happens when you're engaging with an audience, Um, what brings people in, what leads you to the next point. And I found that through storytelling and sharing about lived experiences, um, it's allowed people to better recognize um, the full breadth of what I've gone through and what other people in their community who might look like me have similarly gone through as well. Not to say that we're all a monolith, but I think that that familiarity um, really breeds um, affinity. And from there, a a more gentle approach. My hope is that uh, after experiencing my series or engaging with me, that they've had a positive interaction with someone who is Asian or maybe looks different from them. So that in the future, if they encounter another person of Asian descent or looks different from them, they might be more open-hearted to uh, that interaction. So Nancy, you do not know this about me, okay? But I have a training called gray area thinking where a key component of that training is the concept of human familiarity. It is. Uh I I actually use this voice of mine that does not match my appearance as a tool Mm -hmm. about familiarity because if you're with me for two hours, maybe you're going to forget I have this voice and you're just going to see me Mm -hmm. as a human. So you, you and I have both focused on the same thing. And I'm really 
You just warm my heart by using that word. I just want you to know that. So thank you. And, and I've got to, you know, based on what you've said, is it difficult for you to be, you know, to do the artist talk? Or once you get going, are you okay? Yeah. You know, once I get going, I am okay. There are moments where, you know, some of what I share, I always try to give a bit of a content warning of, you know, there's going to be some hard stuff that I talk about. Um, and there are also times where when I share my voice cracks or I start to cry, but I keep pressing through that because I think the stories and the experiences are too rich to keep to myself. You know, growing up, I didn't realize the value in my story. And so I, all of my classmates know me as like quiet little Nancy in the corner. Whereas, you know, my adult peers recognize that, oh, like she is learning to see the power in her story, stand mm -hmm. in that and recognize that um, these experiences are meant to be shared, not just not just held in. I that's why I reached out to you. You know, I mean, you know, you're you're showing up, you're being vulnerable, right? You're being um, kind you're not shaming anybody. You're talking about what it means to live as a human. Um, and, and, you know, and I love, that, I love a couple of things that you said. First of all, I love that you said to me that, uh, you know, you live in a community that you love but doesn't know how to love you. But you haven't let that hold you back, that you have tried and you are trying currently as, as we just talk right now to help that give that community tools on how to love you and others who are different or other. And then I love the title of your exhibit, okay? Because the title of the exhibit, everyone, is titled, quote, Audacity uh, to be Asian in Rural America, dash, we owe you no apologies, I, unquote. I, I think it's just a really great title. So I have one last question for you, okay? And, and that is this. Um, what, what made you, I mean, do you think you're idealistic? I think you are. Somebody working to try and change the world. Um, what made you idealistic if, if you believe you are an idealist? Oh, gosh. You know, I think, um, I don't think that change happens overnight for everyone. I think for me, it quite literally did. <laughs> um, but I think watching my mom refuse to assimilate and have pride in her way of life, which did not look like my peers, is what gives me strength to continue living my life the way I do. I don't know that I'm doing anything major other than just trying to live every day aligned with my values in hopes that the kids that are watching, the people who don't say anything, the people that I interact with on a daily basis will somehow glean something from that. You know, I'm, I'm not able to, um, well, I'm just not able to assimilate to a lot of the ways of living around me, partially because of the intersectionality of my identities. Um, but also because just, I, I recognize that through kindness and through showing up and through consistency, um, that, my relationships are strengthened. You know, I often talk about how in the rural, you don't get the option to run away. If you're in a class with someone in second grade, you'll be in the same class with them in 10th grade, right. and you need to learn how to repair your relationships. And so that's me just showing up now, recognizing that not everyone's going to understand, but if you are interested in 
connecting, repairing, continuing, I'm here. So beautifully said. Nancy Valentine, Nancy X Valentine, thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio. I have so enjoyed talking to you, and I suspect I could talk with you for two more hours, okay, that we would find so much in common about how we see the world. I just uh, wish you the very best, okay? And I look forward to seeing more art from you. And I, I look forward to hearing more about what you are doing in greater Minnesota to help, help make the place welcoming for everyone. Thank you, Ellie. I appreciate this time with you. You're welcome. Thanks for being on Ellie 2.0 Radio, okay? All right. Yeah. Take care. All right, everyone, that was Nancy X. Valentine, who is an artist um, and doing other things in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, about trying to help all of us get past stereotypes and how we view people in various ways. If you like what you hear, okay, go. all you have to do is Google Nancy X. Valentine. You're going to come up with a wonderful website and some great, uh, and some great words and some great art. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to do my C block where I talk about my work as an idealist. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. We're back. LA 2.0 Radio. Uh, Nancy X. Valentine. I could have talked to her for two hours. It just floored me to hear her use the word familiarity. It just did. That's my word. That's the word I'm using in gray area thinking. I call it the F word. I do. Boy, do I get attention when I say that. And so, yeah, idealist, very humble, and um, just... Go look at her website. Look at go check out the Minnesota Women's Press uh, article from um, oh Ellie, which uh, magazine? What date is it? Um, it is from you know I should know that from uh, it's the December 2023 uh, Minnesota Women's Press. Okay, um, I've got uh, like four minutes here, so I'm I, I had something, but I'm going to pass on that. I had two things, and I'm only going to do one. So I had this experience now. Please understand, uh, you know, I do my best not to be braggadocious in any way. I don't like braggadocious people, and I don't want to be that way. But I need to tell you something, okay? I was having a dinner just uh, last night over at a friend's house, and uh, um, they made tacos. It was just quite delightful. And Christmas ta- tacos on Christmas plates um, and with jingle bells. Um, and um, she told me this in- what I considered a pretty incredible story. She's, uh, she's read my book, <clears throat> and uh, she and her husband have um, friends in Colorado. And uh, she, she sent uh, the book or told the, the friend in Colorado about my book, and the friend in Colorado read my book. And then, as I heard from my friend last night, this person in Colorado uh, knew of a family with a young transgender child where the child was not being accepted, 
where the child was um, being suppressed by the parents. Somehow this person in Colorado um, convinced them, the parents, to read my book. She, I think she sent them my book. And, and, and so, so these parents who, my friend here in Minnesota has no idea who these parents are, but she's hearing this story from her friend in Colorado. This parents of trans kid gets my book. They get my book. They read my book. And it changes their view of their transgender child and causes them to become accepting, to be willing to love their kid for who their kid truly was, not the child that they thought they had based on birth gender, gender assigned at birth. And I'm hearing this story last night, and I'm like sitting here thinking, I, and my friends last night said, Ellie, look at how you ripple. Of course, that's the title of my newsletter, The Ripple. And she was just like, you, you're making a difference, Ellie. She said, think of Think of how that child's life has changed for the better because you wrote a book and the parents were willing to read it. I don't know, everyone. I got to tell you, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it gets any better than that. For me, the idealist, the person trying to change the world. So, all right. I need to do a big shout out to my producer, Patrick, who's doing great. The math that he has had to do today, uh, because I'm all over the place with my, with my uh, times of taping, he's done a great job. I need to do a shout out to my other producer, Brett Johnson, who, you know, you know from before, earlier this year, Brett been with me since 2016. I started at this station. And to all of you, okay, um, I wish you great holidays. I do. I wish you great holidays with wonderful conversations over the dinner table where things are sane. Okay? And I wish you great, a great start to 2024. We have no idea how 2024 is going to end, but at least let's get it to start well. Okay? And me, Ellie Krug, I'm getting in the car and heading to heading to Colorado to go spend time with my best friend in the world, Thap, and his family. So I'll be back. Take care. Bye.